they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Tom, I know we were going to do the SCOTUS stuff today. We're going to scrap all that because the second coming has happened. So I really didn't think I was going to see it in my lifetime. And I really just want to take some time and really kind of, kind of go through that. It's, it's a very exciting time for us. It's yeah. a time a lot. Of oh, my God. It's a long day on Twitter today. <laughs> <laughs> Longer for you guys, apparently. You were losing your friggin' mind. Yeah. It was a lot. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hi, Nick. Hi, Phil. And uh, like I mentioned, uh, we have senior legal analyst uh, Tom Cavanaugh with us today. How are you, Tom? Never better. The lovable libertarian returns. Thank God. <laughs> We're going to need it today. Thank. Uh, before we get started, all of the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys have questions, comments, uh, beer suggestions, guest suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to, uh, all the dumb, sing, uh, dumb things that we retweet. Um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, uh, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, the podcast, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market where you can buy and sell shares in future political events, pretty much a stock market for politics. Uh, what's great for our listeners uh, who use the promo link when opening up a new account, you receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So open up a $20 account and uh, predict it will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Uh, like I said, use the uh, promo link, predictit.org slash promo slash barstool Paul 20 uh, and check that out. Um, I haven't had a chance to look this week, but I'm there's I unpredicted unpredicted Elizabeth Warren is surging. Yes. I mean, she, she's going up in the polls, too, but unpredicted. She's really going up uh, by favorite now, I think. Right. Yeah. She's the head Biden. Of Biden unpredicted. But uh, yeah, she's really made a big jump. So the that's where the money is, Nick. That's where the money is. <laughs> we'll see about that yeah. later on. I ask this every time I'm here and I get evasive answers and looks in a different direction. Have any of you experts made any money on the site? I, I'm up. I'm, yeah. Yeah. yeah see? I'm up a little. Yeah. <laughs> up a little. <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting out a few markets. Yeah. <laughs> I got I'm playing the long game. Like uh, asking Alan Greenspan how he does in the stock market, I suppose. <laughs> Easily several cents at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, like I mentioned, uh, we have Tom here. Um, Bill, why don't you give us Let's a preview of what's Yeah. On. So as Nick mentioned, we've got our senior legal analyst, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, here to offer a preview of some of the more compelling cases before the Supreme Court this year. We've got an interesting case looking at whether the Sixth Amendment requires a unanimous jury conviction at the state level. Another case addressing the question of whether the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments permit a state to abolish the insanity defense, something that has gotten our good old friend and colleague Phil Barker out of more than one jam. That's right. 
<laughs> and if there's time, we can touch on a Yale law professor, New York Times uh, Supreme Court reporter, Linda Greenhouse, who stirred up some debate over the Second Amendment recently by calling on the Supreme Court to drop the upcoming case on New York City's gun restrictions in light of the mass shootings in Dayton and El Paso. Tom, so much to break down and think about. Where, where do you want to start? I'm going to start by saying we are absolutely going to make time to talk okay, about good. drop the gun case, because it's <laughs> in some ways, I think it's one of the most important things we could talk about uh, uh, this week. But but let's mention two criminal cases. The court opens in October. So uh, I'm hoping I'll be back at least once before then, because there's some really great civil cases in front of the court this time around as well. But these are the two big ticket criminal cases. The first involves, as you've said, Bill, uh, the question of whether or not the Sixth Amendment has been incorporated as to the states to require unanimous juries. Incorporated, for those that may not have heard that word, uh, it means this. The Bill of Rights applies to the federal government uh, as it was written. And the court has, over uh, all of these years, said that those rights, virtually all of them at this point, also are required of the states. So, uh, you have a First Amendment right to the freedom of expression. The court has incorporated that to include the states. So the same rights and responsibilities under the first that you have as to the federal government, you have as to uh, state governments. It turns out that's not true of a portion of the Sixth Amendment, which applies to juries and a number of other uh, trial procedure things. And that is, do the states have an obligation in a criminal case to go to a unanimous jury uh, for a conviction? And the answer until now, and there is precedent on this, a 1972 case, uh, is that they do not. Uh, that 72 case was decided 4-4, and then Justice Powell wrote uh, uh, the deciding opinion in this case to say states are separate sovereigns, and in this case can make their own judgments about whether or not they think juries need to be unanimous to convict uh, under the Sixth Amendment. Which would mean they could be 11 to 1, 10 to 2, and still find exactly. somebody guilty. Yeah. The case is Ramos, and it was actually a 10, uh, a 12 person jury, 10 of whom voted to convict, two of whom did not. Um, ironically, the case comes from Louis, I, don't, I should say it differently. The case comes from uh, Louisiana, and ironically, Louisiana rewrote its state statute to require unanimous juries, huh. but they didn't do it retroactively. So even though the state now requires them, Ramos's conviction would not be affected by uh, that change in statute. Um, I suspect the court is probably going to incorporate this provision of the sixth. But what's interesting is, if you recall a couple of cases from last term, uh, in one case they did uh, incorporate under the Eighth Amendment. You remember we talked a lot about the Tim's case. This was the civil forfeiture case. And there they talked about uh, these fundamental rights under the Eighth that have to be extended to the states to protect people from the state. At the same time, though, you might also remember they avoided in a double jeopardy case telling states that they couldn't uh, uh, charge in federal versus state kinds of ways. And they actually used the phrase separate sovereigns. So uh, this case could go either way, and it depends on which of those two previous decisions the court looks to as it makes this judgment. Is there a reason why there was different logic and like, what was the, why it, it seems to me like there's an overarching principle, which is that either these, these ideas apply to States or they don't. So is there a reason why they went one way with one case and, and, and a different way with the other case? Yeah, I suspect it's because Tim's was not a case that relied on a direct precedent. Uh, Tim's they could incorporate without overruling themselves. Uh, this case 
and in the double jeopardy case, they would have had to reverse a previous case. So in this one, they're going to have to reverse that 72 uh, decision and outright and overtly, not mm-hmm. rephrase it, not, uh, you know, sort of nuance it. They're going to have to say we are reversing uh, in that case. So I suspect it's the, the presence of precedent uh, in the one and the absence of precedent in the other. Mm-hmm. The more important part of your question, though, is should that make any difference? Right. That is, how would we describe a right in the Bill of Rights that's not sufficiently important that the states should be required to honor it? At the same time, the federal government is obligated to uh, uh, honor it. Is, the does, Second Amendment, incidentally, was one of the ones that most recently was incorporated in Heller. Uh, now, there you might say to yourself, well, boy, that's sort of a controversial amendment, and there's some ambiguity about it. Uh, but the sixth is not ambiguous. This is Neither was the eighth. This is interesting to me because there, there's, I've read something recently where they said the founders or the, the, the thought is that the founders assumed a fair trial was a unanimous jury, or at least That's there's right. some, yeah, something in a in criminal that, case, in a criminal case at the federal or the state level. And then the other thing is the more recent social science research has found that unanimous juries oftentimes get better results. There's more deliberation. Yeah. You know, uh, we just watched the family and I had 12 angry men and my yeah. kids all for the yeah. first time. I was and just going <laughs> to invoke that very anyway, thing. And what a great, you know, example of, you know, one individual fighting back and, you know, movies have to be true, Tom, right? They uh, do, indeed. <laughs> I trust, though, that you watch the old Black and White. Oh, uh, of White course. Okay, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The original. There's a, there's a substandard remake that comes much later <laughs> that almost essentially entirely misses the entire point oh. of the, the old Black and White one. So this will be an interesting one to watch. It's been a court that's been, generally speaking, friendly uh, to criminal defendants, with the exception maybe that Double Jeopardy case. Um but it'll start to continue, I shouldn't say start to continue, will continue to give us a read on the ways kind of the right flank and the left flank of the court agree or disagree. But this is an easier one. If we're talking about overturning precedent, this isn't a, a overly partisan issue, is it? I mean, this seems to be one that I, I would think this would be a... Well, I, I, no, an it easy. probably isn't. But I guess the question is, uh, and we've asked that before, when we're going to overturn precedent, what are the principles upon which we do that? And, and I've sort of been hostile to the idea that, well, you do it where it's easy and you don't do it where it's hard. Uh, this would be an easy precedent mm-hmm. to overturn. Mm-hmm. Who's going to be angry about the idea, uh, other maybe than state prosecutors, that to get a criminal conviction and take from somebody their life, their liberty, or their property, you need a unanimous jury. But if yeah. we've heard so much moaning and gnashing of teeth about, say, Roe versus Wade as an untouchable precedent, uh, this is a really interesting mm-hmm. area for the court these days. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in one of these uh, reversals, they're going to have to lay out a more careful system for making judgments. Uh, it's a little bit like preserving that cross because it's old, even though we, mm-hmm. maybe today you wouldn't be able to build it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems like... Let's place, do that, yeah. yeah. Because in some ways, this one might trigger more conversation uh, this involves the question of the insanity uh, uh, defense, and uh, in particular, Kansas, which doesn't have a separate insanity defense, but which does allow uh, introduction of evidence on mental illness in terms of its effect on intent. Um, and, and the reason I split that hair is that, oddly enough, uh, there are three states that have overtly eliminated the insanity defense, Idaho, uh, Montana and um, oh, see, uh, Utah, so Western states. Um, what's at stake in this case is uh, a, a guy who kills 
essentially an entire family, mostly his own, his estranged wife, her parent, and a child. And uh, here's, here's the interesting twist. There, there are two ways the law has thought about the insanity defense uh, historically. One form of it is that you can't appreciate the difference between right and wrong. And that's the prevailing view uh, that's been adopted by all the states that allow this uh, defense overtly, that you, you're a sociopath. You just simply can't see the difference between right and wrong. Killing somebody is the same as drinking a glass of ice water. Something you would do, I've heard this example, something you would do in front of a police officer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, there is a, a sort of minority approach to it, which is the irresistible impulse. That is, you may appreciate the difference between right and wrong, but you can't stop yourself. And what makes this case so fascinating is that's the claim being made by the defendant. That is, he is not certifiably a sociopath who can't tell the difference. He just says he couldn't stop himself. This is not a popular version of the insanity defense. Most states reject it and say, if you can appreciate the difference between right and wrong, we reject the idea that you can't act on that knowledge. What he'd like the court to say is that he can introduce that evidence and use it as a separate independent defense and essentially adopt the idea that there are impulses that can't be controlled and that we'd call, and I guess this would be sort of a loose way of using the word, insanity. Hmm. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because I, I, there, oh, there's huh. a lot of hums. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was a I, there was a really interesting uh, podcast. I think it was Radiolab. I don't know if you ever listened to Radiolab a while back that talked about this and the idea of sort of free will. And they used an example of a um, a guy who had a, a form of essentially brain damage. He had a part of his brain. He, he was epilepsy. It wasn't brain damage. He had epile epilepsy and had part of his brain removed and, and it affected impulse control. And he found himself caught up in um, child pornography. Right. And it was, it was like, he knew that it was wrong. He felt terrible about it, but he couldn't. It, and it was a biological thing, right? It was, it was, it wasn't that he was choosing to do this. Um, and it raises all sorts of interesting questions about, you know, how, how much capacity someone has to make these decisions. It's when you talk about it in that sense of, I, I knew it was wrong, but I just couldn't resist. It's hard to be sympathetic, but, but it seems like if you could in some way demonstrate that that actually is the case, that you're not just thinking, eh, it was too, you know, it was too good not to do it essentially. Um, but well, of course that's part of the problem. Uh, how do you demonstrate the mental process that precedes a crime and that produced an irresistible impulse? Well, the defendant can say he had one. A psychiatrist can say, I have diagnosed him as somebody with impulse control problems or something along those lines. But to use the phrase he uses in his brief, to say he is not morally responsible for the crime because he was incapable of resisting the impulse to kill all of these people. Uh, that's a hard sell for a lot. It's a hard sell for me, to be perfectly honest. Well, I, I mean, I, I feel like the distinction is the, the impulse to kill people or the impulse to kill those particular people. It, it seems like, was he living with them or were they somewhere separate? Because if it was an uncontrollable yeah. impulse... I feel like you would kill the first person that you come across when that impulse kind of emerges. Interesting. His, his, the answer is they are all family members. It's an estranged wife. Um, he is clearly mentally ill. Let's, we, we can all sure. concede that. Uh, uh, and, and psychiatrists have said that. So he kills his ex-wife. He kills uh, a, a grandparent. He kills uh, the child. Um, and, and the trigger was that the wife 
uh, essentially rejected him. So what produces the irresistible impulse in him is precisely who those people are. And that's what distinguishes him from a sociopath. Might very well be the sociopath walking down the street just randomly kills somebody because, again, it's no different than having a ham sandwich. This guy concedes he understands that it was wrong, but he won't concede that he could stop himself from doing it. I wonder, is the medical community, can they make those distinctions? I'm thinking about like with the insanity defense, is there a – how has that fared over time? Do people feel like it is respected that there is an ability to draw that line accurately or is it messy? It's it's enormously messy. Start with it's messy because of the adversarial system whereby both sides call an expert who will each say, I'm a genuine expert, I've written the textbook on it, and I think A, and the other will say, I think not A. Mm -hmm. And you're left with a jury full of lay people saying, well, essentially, in that battle of the experts, this one was more credible, or there was enough corroborating evidence to go along with what one said. And I'll give you an example of that. When John Wayne Gacy uh, went to trial in Illinois, he's our, Illinois' most famous mass murderer, um, He wanted to take the insanity defense, uh, and his lawyer declined. And one of the reasons his lawyer declined was they couldn't find an expert who'd say you're insane and tried to cover your tracks. Mm -hmm. So what Gacy did was to bury all of these uh, young boys under his house, and not only that, covered their bodies with lye uh, to sort of prevent finding them uh, with a dog that could smell. So what the experts all said there was the evidence suggests you not only can appreciate the difference between right and wrong, you tried to cover your tracks and prevent yourself from being caught. Uh, so not yeah. only did he, he didn't plead it, he actually said that was incompetent counsel for failing to do it. The Supreme Court said it's not because this is perfectly clear. No expert with credibility is going to say when you're trying to cover your tracks, you're insane. But the evidence of the mental process that produces Mm -hmm. the irresistible impulse, I'd be shocked to hear that there's a physician, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker, or anybody who can say with even a high level of certainty that it's true. Mm -hmm. Because there you're not looking at a person who can't put sentences together or, or who claims they're from Mars or something. There's a guy from Idaho who killed somebody because he claims uh, he got a message from Mars and he's, from Venus or something like that. Uh, And he wants in Idaho to be able to plead the insanity defense. Well, it's a, the evidence there is a little more compelling, but it's a different test. Even assuming Mm -hmm. this was true. Like if let's say this is a legitimate diagnosis, this is really, really difficult for the legal system to be able to make a, a fair assessment of this. Like you said, in front of a jury. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I was just, what is the, I mean, just to, to clarify for, for me that, the specific question that the court is going to be considering is, is it about that aspect? You know, if that is enough to prove what, you know, it's competence or, I mean, or is it a, like, what's, what's the actual question that the court is considering? He's raising eighth and 14th amendment argument. So he says under the cruel and unusual punishment uh, provision of the eighth, that it would be that to punish him when he is not morally responsible for the crime. And if he's not permitted to produce evidence that he isn't morally responsible. Remember, Kansas allows mental state, but only on guilt or innocence, that his Eighth Amendment uh, rights are violated. The 14th Amendment has become the catch-all in every claim made in front of the court these days. You're treating me differently than other people without a 
rational or legitimate or a compelling reason. For our listeners, uh, 14th Amendment, what, would, what are we talking about Equal there? Equal protection. Equal protection. Yeah, sorry. So basically he's saying other people can plead other defenses. Generally, they can choose their own trial strategy and make whatever claim to the jury they like, but you're preventing me from making a claim uh, in a way that is not rational or legitimate. Where you think? Where do you think the court, do you have any feeling where the court may end up on this? Well, uh, here's another separate sovereigns case. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, I'm inclined to think that they might adopt kind of the double jeopardy approach. And that is let states make their own judgments about rules of evidence. And, and the reason I think that is twofold. The first is the eighth doesn't say you've got a right uh, uh, to plead the insanity defense. It doesn't even intimate uh, that mental state or mens re, you know, a criminal or guilty mind is a requirement for a conviction. So you don't have a direct constitutional uh, provision here. Um, and second, it seems to me that states in, in these contexts have lots of other rules of evidence. Often they conflict. And if the court gets into the business of we have to have homogeneity among mental state rules, then maybe we need them in lots of other areas. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Should we jump to Second Amendment? Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> what we're jumping to is the Senate. And, and the reason I'm kind of exercised about this one is that we've heard lots of conversation about the impact that a president's tweets might have or that social media in other contexts might have. And I'm actually going to talk about something different than Linda Greenhouse, who I think as an op-ed author is well within uh, the, the boundaries of propriety when she says the court should reject this case. So let me just refresh people's mm-hmm. memory about the case and then uh, talk about what happened at the Senate. The case involves a New York City ordinance that doesn't let you transport a gun that you own legally in New York to somewhere outside of New York. Uh, it is one of the ways that New York in the post-Heller, uh, the you know sort of post-guns are a thing you can own uh, universe, did to make it harder for people who have them to exercise their Second Amendment right. So we're, we're not going to have a debate about the Second Amendment, but what we can all agree to is that cities, Chicago did it, have taken all sorts of approaches to making doing the Second Amendment really hard. Mm-hmm. Excessive amounts of training, very expensive licensing. You can't transport it outside the city mm-hmm. if you own it inside the city. So uh, New York, when the case reached the Supreme Court, changed its rule. So they watered it down. And that prompted two things. The first is an editorial from Linda Greenhouse saying, well, New York changed its rule, and now we've got these terrible shootings in El Paso and Dayton, and it's not time for the court to make a Second Amendment judgment. The thing I care about is that five sitting U.S. senators filed a friend of the court brief, and I use the word friend here very, very loosely, saying, essentially, that if you don't do what we think is appropriate in this case, there will be political ramifications read here, packing the court or making some effort to change uh, uh, the judiciary. Um, They invoke big money arguments. You know, the NRA is in on this and they they trash the Federalist Society throughout their brief. Forget what side of this you're on. The idea that five U.S. senators are threatening the third branch of government with uh, political ramifications if they don't dismiss the case because these people think it's a good idea. I think, first of all, should be front page news. And second of all, should be condemned by anybody that thinks the Constitution matters. Mm-hmm. Is there history? So yes, I'm a little <laughs> like, this one, really, this one gets my blood boiling. 
this is this is fairly unprecedented, right? You don't see the the Congress stepping in and we're going to retaliate, yeah, putting their thumb you. on. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the difficulties John Roberts has with a president that bickers with him and that sort of thing. What does he do now? Mm-hmm. And I and I'm wondering why he didn't, as he did with the president, say it's not true. I mean, you'll recall one of the when when there was the, the Obama judges and the whatever judges. Roberts went out of his way to say publicly there aren't Obama judges or Bush judges. There's judges, and they're trustworthy, and and we have to believe in that. Well, I don't know why you don't say to these senators, do you have any idea what it is you're saying here? Mm-hmm. You're going to go to the floor of the Senate and try and retaliate against another branch of government that didn't do what you think it ought to have done? This is this is terrible. Mm. It's deeply troubling. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> problematic. Deeply troubling. Problematic. <laughs> Yes. Can I, Tom, can I ask a question about the, the, how the, I, I don't know the history. Um, is there a pattern to how the court has ruled on these sorts of things post Heller? So I, I the reason I'm thinking about this, there's, there seems to be, a, I, I haven't thought about this until you were just talking about it, but it seems like there's a similar situation with Heller and, um, with, and, and guns and with Roe and abortion in that you, you had this sort of national decision. And then with, with Roe, you have States, I, I'm most familiar with Texas having, you know, being from there. Uh, but a, a number of States, we've talked about cases on here where States try to, without, you know, banning abortion, they try to make it as difficult as possible. And it's a similar thing, it seems like with guns. So guns are allowed, you know, people have a, a constitutional right to guns. And now you have places that are opposed to that, trying to find other ways to make it, it difficult. The court seems, yeah. I, I mean, it's not, you can't say w- with like one, there's, you can't paint the the court's history with abortion, you know, with a broad brush, but it seems like it has been willing largely to let states do stuff up to a point. Has that been the case with the, with guns as well? Or is it a fairly new, or, I mean, it's a newer issue in some ways. Yeah, as a general matter, the answer is yes, but they've done it a different way. That is to say, in the abortion cases, and there have been lots of them that have come post-Roe, you know, the biggest of which would have been Planned Parenthood, uh, where Sandra Day O'Connor creates a standard, and she says, um, you cannot put undue burdens on a woman's reproductive rights and her pursuit of them. Mm-hmm. And so the cases that have come up to the court have been decided on that standard, and as a general matter, the court's been pretty protective. Um in the Second Amendment case area, Heller and McDonald, which was essentially the same case, but not to the District of Columbia, instead to cities, that's really been it since. Uh, there hasn't been anything since that. They've turned down a number of cases where they would have had a chance to say that fee is too high, or that number of hours of training is too much, or having taken certain this case, that infringement on the Second Amendment is at least something that we're going to examine. So I think what the the five senators in this brief are worried about is that they're going to say it is, and that this is a place where they might establish a standard for making a judgment about, let's just take the very same one. And frankly, I think it'd be kind of shrewd if they did. We've already said you can't put an undue burden on a woman's right to pursue reproductive rights. We're going to say the same thing here. You can't put an undue burden on a person's exercise of their Second Amendment rights. So I would guess that on one side of that would be traveling with an unloaded gun to a gun range outside the city, permissible. But I suspect, and and the Heller uh, opinion said this pretty clearly, reasonable gun control measures are absolutely constitutional. You can't have fully automatic weapons. I'm sure the court would uphold the bump stock ban that was uh, a a Trump executive order. 
I suspect if a case came up on magazine size or um, particularly potent weaponry, uh, you know, uh, armor-piercing bullets or something like that, I think they'd say it's not an undue burden. This is an undue burden. They probably don't want to get into the weeds, right? As you were talking, I was thinking about gerrymandering, right? Where they kind of kicked it back and said, this is not something we want to be involved in. But it's difficult, right? Because hell, that's what Heller did, right? Heller said yeah. there there can be some, we're not going to tell you what it is, figure it out. Right. But the difference is, remember, the gerrymandering case that I still cry about at night <laughs> with, with some regularity wasn't premised on a constitutional claim that the court accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heller is. So they can't say we're going to punt this back down, at least in the sense that they've got a Second Amendment uh, uh, claim. And to say, well, you know, we're going to let states decide one way or the other. We're not going to establish a standard. They're going to have to do the same thing with respect to abortion rights, because the states, as Phil points out, are pushing very hard on the boundaries of it. Uh, We mentioned a couple of those cases. So I think where they've made a clear statement about the constitutional right to privately own and and, uh, Mm -hmm. have in your possession a gun, they're going to have to set a standard for when states overstep the regulation of that right. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. The fact that so New York changes its laws. They changed the law basically to, to go to the Supreme Court and say like, oh, not a problem anymore. Right. The fact that the Supreme Court and, and New York argues it's moot, right? We, we changed right. it. We changed what they were upset about. You can let this go. And the court said, no, we still want to talk about it. Yeah. Is that an indication that they they want to go further than just saying this is problematic mm-hmm. uh, and get yeah. into what you're suggesting here, a more detailed account of what is and is not reasonable within the Heller standard? Yeah, a couple different Uh, dimensions to the answer to that. The first is they didn't completely eliminate uh, their gun uh, restrictions. So there is a question about whether or not what they did mooted the Mm. case. Second, um, uh, without getting inside the head uh, of the court, I'm not sure it means they want to go further. I think that's what these five senators, one of which is from our state, maybe the most inconsequential senator in the history of the United States, (laughs) Dick Durbin, who's been in the Senate for a long time virtually the entire history of the United States to almost no effect. (laughs) But I I think what they're after is, well, we're sure that what's going to happen here is uh, an erosion of protections Mm -hmm. or a standard that is so easy to meet uh, that is for a gun owner that it effectively eliminates standards. And uh, that's not, that's not what the cases suggest. It continues to besmirch people like Kavanaugh and Gorsuch uh, you know, they're conservative, so they're sure going to be lunatics about guns. I don't know that that's going to turn out mm-hmm. to be true. Uh, the easy way to decide the case is to set a standard and decide this particular thing. I, to your earlier point, I do think Democrats have to be careful, given the, the, the way in which the Trump administration has attacked institutions. They can't fall prey to those same tactics, even if this, is, this isn't getting a lot of attention. I, I, I support that. Yeah, and I'm not doing we, a crybaby thing about no, one side gets attention no, no, and no. one doesn't. But, but here's this is an attack on an institution that isn't via social media. Right. Mm-hmm. This is an attack on an institution that isn't a tweet. This is an attack that's premeditated, that's lengthy that comes from sitting U.S. senators, and that has a threatening dimension to it that none of these tweets and Facebook posts or social mm-hmm. media things do. Uh, I, what I, I, how is it there isn't a reporter in America that has asked the question, at least to the best of my knowledge, what do you mean by political consequences? Mm-hmm. What exactly is it you're going to do if the Supreme Court hears mm-hmm. and decides this case? The, the, 
I mean, they're very busy thinking that Trump is the second coming. Did we not talk about that already? I'm, I'm sorry. Go, Phil. I, mean, I think the row analogy is interesting for your for your your point, right? So if if you're not sure how you feel about it, flip it around. And if the court were about to rule on one of these states, you know, the rights of a state to um, uh, to limit abortion, and Democratic senators wrote to the the Supreme Court saying, "If you do, if you decide this wrong, there will be consequences." Sorry. Republican senators, if Republican senators wrote to the court saying, yeah. if you decide this wrong, there'll be consequences, people would be deeply uncomfortable. Even worse than that, if we even right. hear the case, there'll be consequences. Right. Wow. And and just to the money thing, and then I, I know we're probably over time right. here and I'm talking way too much, but um, are there serious people in America that think there aren't moneyed interests that are trying to protect the right to reproductive freedom in Roe versus Wade? Mm-hmm. And if your standard is, if people are spending lots of money on it, the court's political, Boy, you have gone down a rabbit mm-hmm. hole. You're never getting out of the. Uh, yeah, I, I know I we're we're wrapping up, but I, this case I think is interesting because it seems to if if people are thinking of it on long conservative liberal kind of lines, it it seems to bring into conflict two kind of conservative legal or constitutional principles, which are states' rights and Second Amendment rights, right? And so you have you know which of those wins out in this in this situation because you know a state's rights argument would argue that a, a state has a right to limit these sorts of things and then you have the second second amendment side uh, as well. It's a great place to close because actually all three of the cases we talked about involve the, the sort of balancing of state rights versus yeah. uh, big government or constitutional rights or something like that, right? Well, yeah. I would imagine either of those uh, uh, outcomes would be um, more beneficial than holding a branch of government hostage, but that's <laughs> yes. just me. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's talk beer. Phil, what do you, what so do you I'm enjoy? drinking um, uh, a beer from Other Half Brewing Company, uh, which is out of Brooklyn, New York. Um, I was not familiar with this brewery uh, until I, I was hooked up with one of these. It's a it's a brewery that doesn't distribute, so I guess they're hard to come by. It's one of the ones you go wait in line for hours to buy a, a handful of them. Um, and I was lucky enough to get my hands on on one. So other half, this is Green City. It's their IPA. Um, it gets phenomenal review, or it gets really good reviews uh, online. And it is. Um, I was saying that I, I wish before we came on the air. I was saying I wish the three of you were drinking it so we could kind of compare notes. I, I really like it. Um, it is different from all the other. Well, not all. It's different than so many of the other IPAs that I've been having. It's. It's not. It doesn't have that really strong kind of citrusy, um, you know, uh, note to it. It's really kind of mellow. It's not a super strong, um, even the hops, like it's got the hoppy flavor, but it's not like, you know, in your face. Um, and, and I, I really like it. It's, uh, um, it's got all the, you know, the stuff that I like about IPAs, but not, you know, it's not beating you over the head with it. Um, yeah, I, 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 (laughs) Tom says my voting method is either I'll have another or I won't. This definitely gets, I'll have another. This this one was good. <laughs> Tom, uh, why don't you tell us about our first beer? Mm-hmm. That was a great review, though, Phil. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> knock you over the head. It's, and, and then it culminates yeah. in the yeah. I'll have another. I, yeah. I kind of dig that. Uh, well, given that we're going to talk about music, I have two music beers uh, this week. <laughs> Both of them come from Four Hands Brewery in St. Louis. The first uh, comes in, and it's the first time I've ever seen a beer done this way a two pack. The name of the beer is Shakur. So I assume all <laughs> listeners will know that I have in my hands a two-pack of Tupac. Oh, that's good. It's just, it, it's beautiful. It's a West Coast uh, IPA, um, but West Coast style. So it's not super hoppy. It's not super bitter. 
I think we all agreed around the table that we really, really enjoyed this yeah, beer. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Um, listeners are going to hear three cans clink on the table now. This is my second music beer that we'll have to, we're going to have to do a second beer review. Sure. So we talk about this. The second beer I have is Biggie Smalls. <laughs> <laughs> also from Four Hands Brewery, and it's a bourbon-aged uh, imperial stout with marshmallows. Oh, and it yeah. is magnificent. Oh. We also quickly sampled a beer. I says, I, Nick, I think this is our first Minnesota beer out of uh, Fulton Brewery out of oh, Minneapolis. Yeah? It's their Mosaic IPA, um, which I thought was was pretty good. It was sort of a traditional, surprisingly good. Yeah, it's IPA. A very different, um, very different profile from the first beer. Yeah, <clears throat> it had a decent amount of hops to it, but also had like a, I don't, I don't know if it was apricot, but some sort of. Yeah, floral, um, tropical notes to it. Hey, we I try guess. a lot of IPAs. Not all of them are good, but I really, I really enjoyed that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tom, what was your sense of that beer? I liked it, uh, I, and I uh, the apricot is was a flavor I saw there too. Mm-hmm. It was really, really good. Yeah, see, I should have gone with my instincts. That's right. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> If you guys uh, want to check out the beards we have on the uh, podcast, podcast, why do I keep doing that? Um, find us on uh, Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics, and you will find all of our uh, our beer reviews on there. Now, here we have to just say this: I have on Untapped sixty six hundred and fifty two distinct beers. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I only give a five under two circumstances. <laughs> One is that if Jesus Christ Himself drinks this beer, oh, he's a here. five. <laughs> Another is if I face the death penalty and it's tomorrow and it's my last meal, <laughs> would I drink this beer? And I say that to preface the fact that we're all going to drink Biggie Smalls right now, which is one of my roughly hundred wow. fives. Really? Okay, I didn't know on. that. Right, so now I'm grumpy that we all, we'll tell you all that. getting to drink this. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! Oh, that's gonna be that's a good beer. Oh, see that. Oh, just the right amount of sweetness. Yeah, girl. So that is an imperial stout, a stout with marshmallows. Mm-hmm. Wow. Damn. Do they make this year round, or is this a special? I think it's one? a one and off that they did for St. Louis Beer Week this year, which I happen to be down there for. Wow. And and we gotta find more. <laughs> holy smokes! That is a fantastic beer. It's really good. It's a five. Oh. It's what Jesus is drinking. It, <laughs> Here's what you know too, good. If I was going to be executed. Its pairings are New York pizza or cheesecake. <laughs> <That's, laughs> oh, that's really, really good. Uh, All right. Speed, speed round. Let's do it. All right. So on Tuesday, President Trump abruptly called off a trip to Denmark, announcing in a tweet that he tweet that he was postponing the visit because the country's leader was not interested in selling him Greenland. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let those words just sink in for a moment. Uh, just a few days earlier, Trump had told reporters that owning Greenland, quote, would be nice for the U.S. from a strategic perspective. Trump's interest in purchasing Greenland was met with surprise and bafflement from everyone, especially those living in Denmark and Greenland. <laughs> Over the weekend, the prime minister of Denmark, uh, which was who she, she was visiting Greenland, told reporters that Trump's idea of buying the island was, quote, absurd. After hearing that, Trump canceled his trip uh his visit, Danish lawmakers were furious and many slammed the president's behavior as juvenile, undiplomatic, and insulting. And just remember that Denmark is consistently ranked as one of the happiest countries in the world. Trump managed to piss off some of the happiest people in the world. This is not easy to do. Phil, this has to go down as one of the more bizarre episodes in U.S. diplomatic history. 
reactions. <laughs> yeah, just reactions. I mean, there's, there's yes. different levels of reaction. I mean, there's the reaction that this is actually something that we're talking about doing, which is insane. Um, I, it's just it's just nonsense. Um, I'm going to just suggest saying as a term of art, and we should move on to some other. I'm going to play devil's he may not be able to later, appreciate so the please. difference between buying Greenland and not. I don't. Uh, <laughs> um, but I mean. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, again, there's there's different levels to it. I, it's it's crazy that this was uh, apparently a serious thing that he had brought up a number of times. Now, to be fair, my understanding, I, I don't know the references, but my understanding from reading stuff about this is that this is something the U.S. has talked about in the past. There are other presidents who have thought about this. Um, the, the difference is the, the way it has been handled. I mean, the, the, the fact that Trump t tweeted about the, you know, the canceling of the trip. Um, I mean, he outright said that it was because they wouldn't consider selling him Greenland that he was canceling the trip. <laughs> um, the man tweeted that, you know, the bill, when this story first broke, Bill sent Nick and I, this, you know, the meme listeners maybe have seen it of the Trump tower, like on the, the barren, you know, the, in this like, uh, village in Greenland. Um, and, and I thought, you know, yeah. haha, that's funny. And then Trump went and tweeted that out later in the week. I mean, just the lack of seriousness of it, but uh, you know, for, on a, on a more serious level that, you know, even if this were something else that had happened in a different presidency, um, it would have, you know, if they, if this idea were floated, th this just to me shows that they don't really know what they're doing, right? Because it, it's not that other administrations don't have crazy ideas. It's that you kind of float them through, through back channels. You figure out what sort of you know reception there will be. If a story breaks, you play it down or, or dismiss it. You don't come out and say, yeah, and I'm canceling my trip to Denmark because they won't even consider selling it. That's the part that's, that is bizarre to me. And, and the, the, you know, that sort of uh, oppositional response that, that Trump has, and, and it feeds into this notion again, that we've, we've debated or talked about, is there a Trump, uh, you know, is, is there a Trump doctrine or, you know, what's the overlying principle, overarching principle of Trump foreign policy? And it's Trump, right? It's Trump's ego. That's, that's the overarching principle of, of this. I, I, it's just, it's, it's surreal to me that we're even talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> but he's looking forward to rescheduling the meeting. It's okay. This is only a temporary thing. When, you know, once they once the <laughs> talk about buying Greenland again. <laughs> right. Here's all right. I'm going to play devil's advocate yeah. on this real quick. And, and realistically, this is a real, this is a real thing. There was a story about it on NPR today um, that, with and, and especially coming from a, 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 you know, a more liberal perspective in terms of climate change and, and global warming, the ice melt over the northern, you know, the, the, um, the North Atlantic means that the ice cover, which were, was uh, meant that a lot of that area was inaccessible before, has a tremendous amount of resources, which we would not have access to if we did not have something, a large landmass like that, which has... Uh, fishing opportunities, trade routes, uh, massive oil reserves that have never been accessed by anyone. Realistically, buying Greenland would probably be a really, really good buy at this point. So from a strategic perspective and from a military perspective, I think it's a really, really good buy. Having said that, <laughs> the way he went about it was fucking asinine. So you're, you're, you're right. I, I mean, we should throw in that. that we have a, we have a major air base there. I mean, it is, it is full of resources. The, the question, yeah, right. the idea that, that having Greenland would be good. Yeah. I think that's fine. Right. Like I, having Greenland would be, would be totally fine, but yeah, it's the, you're, you're right, Nick, the, the method. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, <what do> you, 
the largest undefended border or longest undefended border on planet Earth is between the United States and Canada. So I tweeted the president today to say, why don't we get that too? <laughs> You're think I, I say that entirely because there, there's nothing you can say about this whole story that can be more absurd than the way it has been. I, it was yeah. Truman that wanted to buy it right, before, right? right? Yeah. yeah. But but this handling of it, oh, he yeah. called the PM of uh, Denmark nasty. Right. When, <laughs> she was nasty to him yeah. about not selling it. <laughs> <Greenland. laughs> Once again, pause and listen to those words. Right. Our president is being petulant about the prime minister in Denmark <laughs> being nasty to him uh, because she won't sell him Greenland. And, like, and you cannot make this up. <laughs> I think she had – that's the right response, right? You're, you guys are right. Nick, you're right. Phil, you're right that Greenland would be valuable. And you can go in the back channels to reach, reach out to Denmark and Greenland to say like, hey – is this for sale? Right. <laughs> you could look at Trulia or Zillow or Realtor.com. But you do that behind the scenes. You don't do this openly. And then when the – and I will say the, the Denmark prime minister has been pretty diplomatic about this. And then you know Trump gets all upset and he, he was calling her nasty. This whole afternoon he was you know rage tweeting against Denmark. It's know? the art of the deal, man. Oh. You don't let them go. They're gonna they're gonna bend to his will. It's so ridiculous. Ridiculous. When was the Greenland last the time in global politics and in international politics that there was a major sale of a major chunk of you know territory? I, I, territory changes hands, and it, legally you can do this, but it it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Other than Putin just taking right. the Crimea, yeah. that's yeah. Kind of, well, yeah. that's yeah. true. <laughs> Yeah, like that, no, it no, I don't no. think there was an exchange of things of value. <laughs> no. no consideration was offered. No, but even I can't remember. Somebody said something right. like, "This is we don't do this anymore. You don't you don't buy territory. <laughs> even maybe it, we should." <laughs> Can you just picture this on the on the right? And on, you know, you know the old pictures of the jewels and trinkets being given for part of the United States. And here's Trump standing with a certified check. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say some of Trump's stakes. At least, yeah. you know. <laughs> that's the, that's the at least with Truman, you know, right? Truman was the last one. To go back to the idea that Trump doesn't have an overarching foreign policy doctrine, at least with Truman, it fits, right? So Truman was in the midst of this massive expansion of U.S. forces around the world post-World War II at the beginning of the Cold War. The idea of extending American bases overseas, it made sense then. I don't, the, it's just, yeah, I don't need to keep yeah. talking. It was. It was it was fun talking about. Still think we should buy it. All right, let's move on to a serious topic. Uh, after nearly two decades of fighting in Afghanistan, the United States appears to be nearing a negotiated agreement with the Taliban that could bring the remaining fourteen thousand U.S. troops home. Not surprising, this is causing some anxiety inside Afghan in the Afghan government, which has been left on the sidelines as the U.S. and Taliban have had multiple rounds of discussions. The Afghan government has stated, it's, has stated it's open to negotiations with the Taliban, but the Taliban refused, calling the Afghan government nothing more than the American than an American puppet. Huh. Yeah, one of the most immediate concerns is that Afghan women will lose the gains they've made over nearly two decades. Phil, nearly everyone involved agrees that negotiations are the only way out of Afghanistan. What's your sense of whether this will bring an end to the conflict or only bring an end to the U.S.'s role in um, that conflict? I, that, in my mind, it seems pretty straightforward. This isn't going to end the conflict. It's going to end the U.S. role in the conflict. It, it, we, it will leave Afghanistan um, and not all that different of a place than it was when we went to Afghanistan. Um, in that, uh, you know, that you still have the Taliban as a major player. You still have, um, 
you're going to have conflict. You're going to have, yeah, it's going to, it's going to be terrible for human rights in Afghanistan. I, I mean, I, this doesn't seem all that surprising. It seemed like this was foreseeable um, in that if the U.S., it doesn't mean that that we shouldn't have gone into Afghanistan. There was, you know, we there the the situation at the time um, with Al Qaeda certainly was, you know, was was uh, significant. But um, you know, it, this this seems like a long overdue, sad end to this kind of nation building experiment that we did twenty years ago. Um, we were we wanted to bring democracy, but we were never willing to to pay the price that was necessary to, to do that, I think, which was, you know, I, again, we've talked about on here, right? There are examples of successful nation building in us history. And you look at Japan and Germany and places like that, and, and we're still there, right? Um, uh, 75, 80 years later. Um, and it, it just, we were just never willing to, to make that commitment. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's not, it, this is, we're going to leave Afghanistan. I, I was going to say, uh, essentially where we found it, but you know, where we found it plus 20 years of, of conflict and devastation. That's uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. Sad's probably the right word. Tom, you teach conflict resolution. What's as you, as you look at this and what's playing out there, what's, what's your sense of it? Well, that wasn't the direction. I oh, no, go in another, go in another direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just trying to make a transition. Well, I'll take that one in a minute, yeah. but I'm interested in asking Phil a question. It's usually the other way around. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll throw in that <laughs> he one. He doesn't answer questions. What exactly would it, when you say we weren't willing to, to pay the price, I take a very traditional libertarian view on this one. We should not be taking people's things and we shouldn't be hurting people unless there's an awfully compelling reason to do it. We've been there 18 years. I took a look at the numbers today. We've spent $975 billion on Afghanistan. And at the same period of time, we spent, get ready for it, $5.9 trillion on Middle Eastern conflict. Mm -hmm. The Marshall Plan lasted four years, right. and it cost us $12 billion. Yeah. So uh, my view is I'm thrilled to get out of there because I think, generally speaking, nation building uh, is problematic. <laughs> um, and, but I'm wondering, what would, if Phil's president... Uh, or, or even could, God, could wave a magic wand. And I'm not being facetious now. What could we have done that we didn't do other than spend the time, the money, the, the human lives, the treasure, the diplomacy over the course of multiple presidential administrations? Uh, so first of all, what I should, I should clarify that I'm not necessarily saying that I think that we should have gone the nation building route. I, I'm, I'm not saying that, that that was that we, we yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that's what we should be doing. And I tend to agree that the solution at this point is to get out. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, disagreeing with that, but I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, yeah, in terms of a commitment, I mean, very quickly after we, the, the initial invasion of Afghanistan, we very quickly started pulling troops out to, to, because we were, we were, uh, focused on Iraq. So, I mean, I, we, I don't want to deny uh, my, my statement is not meant to minimize the amount of sacrifice or the amount of money or, or time that has gone into it. But, but I don't, um, no, I, oh, no, I don't, I, I know that's not what you're implying, but, um, that's yeah, a, I mean, I think, uh, I, we've spent a lot of money, but it never felt to me like our, like we were there really to rebuild Afghanistan. I mean, I, we didn't, the, the amount of troop commitment that would have been required, um, we weren't willing to do. And, I, and by we, I mean administrations, but I also mean the American public, right? The American public which wasn't willing to support that sort of project in, in, the, uh, in, in Afghanistan, in the Middle East in, in general. Um, and they're not necessarily 
wrong, but it was, it, it feels to me like a, an example of wanting our cake and wanting to eat it too. We want to get in there. We want to rebuild Afghanistan. We want it to be democracy. We want it to be an ally of ours, but we're not really willing to pay the, you know, to, to really take the, the, the amount of investment, um, that it requires or to commit to the sort of thing that would be required by doing that. And so we, we wanted to get the thing out of it that we, you know, in, in the end, a democratic allied, you know, pro Western, pro Western state, but we wanted to do it on the cheap. It felt like. Um, and so, um, that, I mean, that's my, that's, that's just my, my thought on it. Dick, I, I, um, the, uh, to me, this is, this is a, a, a newer version of our, our exit from Vietnam and our, Thank you. Yeah. See, with the pointing, he knows the thing. Um, th this is the, the conversations between Nixon and Kissinger saying we need to be out of there before the next election. If it goes to shit, then it's not our problem anymore. Um, I, I mean, as soon as we leave this, you know, the, the Taliban is not nearly as well funded as, as the Viet Cong were or, or the, the NBA, but the outcome is the same um, in terms of of our involvement there over the past 20 years. I think that there was, in terms of the people on the ground, there was a, a concerted effort to try and rebuild or, or uh, improve the, the, the lives of, of an average uh, Afghan citizen. And there's massive mismanagement. There's government corruption. Um, uh, if, you, if you have the time, uh, listeners, uh, look, at, uh, look up the documentary. Um, this is what war looks like. It's fascinating. Um, and you see the mismanagement of... Uh, resources and uh, lying to members of the administration who come to visit and say everything is going well. Uh, and then just the general population who just, who they, they don't want our help in, in terms of compared to something like, like the Marshall plan. Um, it, it's, it, it's a, it's a cultural, I'm not, not even saying a cultural difference. Yeah. It's a cultural difference yeah. um, between Western Europe and even Japan in, in some instances and the Middle East, which is just constantly historically been a, a region that just cannot be tamed. You, you can't do it. It's, it's physically impossible. No one's been able to do it. Nick yeah. is on fire here. This is I good. Know. And I would say two. Uh, and he's right. Yeah. You know, the, the Vietnam analogy just fits perfectly and it's, it's troubling, but it is, this feels like the Paris peace accords, you know, early on, you know, where the United States wanted to get out of Vietnam at any cost. Same thing. Now we just say like, let's go. And I, I get why that's the case. Um, the other thing that made, made me think of as you were talking, Nick, is I remember meeting, you know, not long after 9-11 with a, a history professor from uh, UW-Wisconsin talking about the history of Afghanistan and how difficult this was going to be. And he kept going through all all throughout history, you know, great powers who've struggled yeah. there. And he yeah. said, this is going to be so much more difficult than everybody assumes. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what played out. This was messy. This is difficult. You know, all that idealism about democracy went out the window very quickly. And it's it's sort of sad. No, I, um, I mean, the U.S. Yeah. military is, is designed yeah. to do a, a, a few fundamental things. You're designed to find a target, destroy a target, yeah. and then leave. That, that's that's really what you're, despite what we, you know, yeah. kind of attach to it, that is your primary function. And we got away from that and yeah. thought that we could do something that we can't in an area that has never been able to do that. And if we'd have this conversation, you know, not long after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, where we said, no, we're negotiating with the Taliban, we'll work out a deal, that wouldn't have been tenable. I mean, the Bush administration rejected that out of hand. Yeah, but the thing yeah. is, we've been negotiating, quote unquote, with them for the better part have. of a decade. We've been talking yeah. about it forever. I agree. And, and, and it, 
the people who we were we were sent there, who the U.S. was sent there to fundamentally destroy and depose. And we've been negotiating with them for a decade. Yeah. You, you gotta, you gotta pull the plug at some point. There's, there's no benefit to us being there anymore. Zero. I can't, I can't resist one legal uh, oh, good. dimension. No one's talking about it. <laughs> but, but as your senior legal advisor uh, or analyst, um, we aren't there with a congressional declaration of war. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the real worries in modern American history is that Congress has abdicated its responsibility entirely relative to the use of the military. And I think one of the things you're hearing from certainly um, the, the more libertarian-leaning people in Congress is these authorizations for the use of force uh, are, the best you can say of them, irresponsible. And I'd argue unconstitutional. This is the delegation of one branch's powers to another in a way that just because they voted on it seems to me to be um, either un- or extra-constitutional. Mm-hmm. And, and one hopes, I, I, it would be interesting if that theme was brought up more mm-hmm. often relative to let's get out of some of these places where Congress gave what should have been a very short, temporary mm-hmm. authorization to the president to respond to an exigent circumstance that's now turned into 18 years and 2,500 dead Americans mm-hmm. in a place, as Phil puts it, we're going to walk away from and it's going to look just like it did before we uh, got this, there. This is such an important point. And it's not just Afghanistan. That authorization for the use of military force has been used for all the other conflicts right. since Afghanistan. And, and you know, the Obama administration, you know, they said, oh, we're, we're going to revisit this. Nope. They uh-huh. stuck with it and mm-hmm. they continued to justify Libya and whatnot. The well, Trump administration, uh, same thing. That's the thing. Like, yeah. realistically, it, like, I understand the Bush doctrine in the context of post 9-11, you know, fear, yeah. uh, patriotism and whatnot. When the Obama administration took power, they moved into a more clandestine um mm-hmm you know, covert war uh, 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 method of, of resolving conflict that realistically most people don't even know the scope of, of uh, you know, everything that, that's happened. But they still kept yep. this massive presence in Afghanistan for no reason. You're telling me that based on the doctrine that you put forward, that you think that a lot of conflicts can be solved on a smaller scale um, with not a huge military presence, um, like I said, in a, in a clandestine fashion, and then you're still hanging on to this dream that you're going to make some sort of massive difference in a country that no one has ever been able to make a massive difference. I don't disagree with that at all. The only thing I would you say shouldn't. is there is there is a difference, right? I mean, so we think about <laughs> women's rights and democracy in Afghanistan. This this will get worse if the Taliban is able to reassert power. They're yeah, it will go group, back to the way that it was. Which was not good, right? No, it yeah. wasn't good. And for a trillion dollars spent, you would hope there would be some more yeah. meaningful progress. So it, it's it's sad. Yeah, yeah it, it'll go back to the way that it was. And we've just spent two decades making the problem worse. No, the, 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 I was kind of going I'm back sorry, to what you were talking about earlier, the, the authorization of the use of military force. The, the other part that I don't really get, I mean, political science can sort of explain why Congress was so ready to sign this blank check in, you know, the aftermath of 9-11, right? There's, you know, you have rally around the flag, you have this sort of renewed nationalism, all of this stuff. It was the politically expedient thing to do for Congress. It it was constitutionally problematic, but it was was politically smart. 
20 years late, almost 20 years later, what yeah. doesn't make sense to me Absolutely. is why Congress isn't willing to, to, to pull it back at this point. And I, I know that they're worried about being criti- criticized of yeah. not supporting troops and, and, and stuff like that. But I, I it, that seems like something that would be politically expedient, that Americans would largely be behind to say, you know, enough of this sort of unlimited, you know, this blank check to do whatever you want. If it's necessary for U.S. security interests, then, then great, we'll support it again. But, but, we're worried about the president's tweets. Did we not talk about this? How many fucking times do I have to bring this up today? So I, this, as you were talking, Phil, it reminded me of this is the campaign, foreign policy campaign that George W. Bush ran on. He said, let's get out of, of Yugoslavia or the, you know, the former Yugoslavia. This And that, that argument sold. I, I'm on board. Yeah. If you're worried about an imperial presidency, the central thing you should be worried about is giving one person the capacity to use the American military. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, listen, I, you can fight about executive orders and, and that sort of thing, but you can undo those. You can't undo 18 years in Afghanistan. Congress is a flaccid, meaningless part of American culture these days. Go, girl. All yeah. they do is investigate. Yeah. That's what we do. Well, we're going to talk about music. Yeah. So some of them listen to <laughs> really second rate, no good music while they uh, run for off, but all <laughs> they get ready for it, hold one office right, right, right. as they run for another one. <laughs> All right, let's jump. Let's jump back to overseas. So, <laughs> back to the UK. So, since Boris Johnson assumed the role of Prime Minister, many in the UK are wondering whether his unconventional tactics might test the country's informal constitution. Specifically, some are wondering what would happen if Britain's Parliament voted to remove the Prime Minister, but he refused to leave. Uh, British scholars say it's been more than a century since the country's constitution, a medley of laws and customs, not all of which are actually written down, has faced such strain. Now, it's important that we're clear. Johnson has not said he would refuse to step down, but the British news media is filled with speculations about what would happen if Mr. Johnson ran roughshod over the conventions and traditions embedded in the constitution. In one scenario, the Queen would have to step in to ask Mr. Johnson to leave. The Queen. Go, go. Most of our listeners Peter, probably Peter. don't know that Phil once played ping pong with the Queen. Uh, Phil, unlike the United States, the British don't have a formal written constitution. It really is a political system based on norms and customs that have developed over time. Should our British listeners, and we have at least one, be worried about the fact that they don't have a written constitution? Or do you believe their political system to be I mean, up to the I, I The first two want a ping pong. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much Americans. So, you know, when I teach uh, comparative politics or European politics and any class, when I talk about democracy for Americans, like when I ask people what makes a country democratic, the idea of like a written constitution or a bill of rights is often like very high on their list. And I have to point out to them that that's not uh, that's that's become kind of the norm around the world, but it's not always the case. So, So Britain does not have a written constitution. They don't have a document that is supreme. Um, the, the law is essentially the supreme entity in, in Britain. So, um, <laughs> as well, as but, uh, you know, this idea of parliamentary <laughs> supremacy or parliamentary sovereignty comes in, which is, which is that in, in Britain, you know, parliament can basically pass whatever they, they want. Like the, the, whatever parliament says is the supreme, you know, is, is the supreme law. Um, and power is unified there. So whatever party controls the House of Commons also happens to be their, uh, their um, you know, have the executive and the prime minister. Um, and for a long time, uh, that the, uh, the, the, there was no real Supreme Court. The judiciary was lumped in with that as well. And they, they've broken that out now. 
Um, but yeah, the, Britain operates, uh, you know, I, I talk a lot as, as you all make fun of me about norms and the, the, the importance of norms and how that much of a role that plays in our political system, even when we don't realize it. Even more so in Britain, is that the case? So Britain relies very heavily on essentially good faith, right? That people are going to abide by by these institutions. And historically, they, you know, recently in, in history, they have. Um, but yeah, I mean, in theory, you know, the 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 uh, the parliament could decide that you know Boris Johnson is prime minister for life or whatever. And you, you could, you could change the laws pretty easily. I don't imagine that that's going to, ha- I'm not particularly worried. And, and I say, I say that because, um, I mean, in the end, the, the ultimate check on things is, is the British public, right. in, in a democratic system. And so, um, it, it's unlikely that if Boris Johnson decided he was going to not going to leave office, it's unlikely that he would retain the support of his own party and others. You know, some people might stick with him, but, uh, it wouldn't go over well. Um, and so I, I I'm not particularly worried. And I, and I think in the end, um, When you talk about the Constitution and we talk about these supreme laws, those are still in some way normative, right? It it relies on the the American public saying that, yes, we trust this document to be supreme. And so even those institutions, even the ability of the Supreme Court to overturn a a law or or a regulation in the U.S. is based on the the willingness of people to go along with that. And so it's not actually – it feels very different, but I don't think in the end it is actually all that different from the system. That we have in place. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> Phil, Phil has just diminished my beloved constitution <laughs> in ways that require a response. Now, uh, first, I'm going to just say can we, the three of us, have a pact that we won't make fun of Phil about norms <laughs> given the range of other things it's we can make list. fun of him about? <laughs> Deal. <laughs> it's a long list. Um, but actually, I, I interject to, to agree. Remember Bush v. Gore. And, and I, I've often said to my students, just hearkening, Phil, to what you've said to yours, um, what makes us different is that the day after the court decided that uh, a really controversial case, we got up, we went to work, and we said George Bush was president. Mm-hmm. Some people angrily and some people happily. But, but you're absolutely right. The norm of honoring, not just the Constitution, but the ways uh, courts, uh, and, and in that case, the Supreme Court have interpreted it, they're enormously important. And, and we aren't that different than the British in the sense that we honored what was our, our custom, our tradition, our values. Uh, I, mean, I, I have to say, I thought, forget the outcome. I thought that was one of the great days in American history. Uh, we, we talk about peaceful transfer of power. Uh, as though it's some, you know, abstract uh, political science concept. But there you had a genuine possibility for uh, a a real crisis in America. Mm -hmm. People got up and said, the Constitution matters, the court we trust, and we're going to move on with our lives and and Mm -hmm. trust it. Here's why I disagree. I disagree and agree with you. Wait a minute. At, at Nick and I are time. disagreeing. No, 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 no. No, we're technically agreeing. We've no. done a lot of surreal, no. uh, surreal things no, 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 today. No, 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 no. Here's the most surreal no. of them all. No, we are technically agreeing with a, a particular point. I'm disagreeing in, in terms of 
Bush v. Gore in, in that context, yes, absolutely. I, I, that was a, a moment in history that, that we should look back at and with, with pride as, as, as Americans. You know, we, we upheld the Constitution and that's the way the system works. In terms of the context of the society that we live in now and the culture that we live in now, a, a global culture, a global culture. I can't talk anymore. And I know I always harp on, on, on <laughs> <the biggie. laughs> it kind of is. Um, I know I always harp on media and social media in particular. I'm not sure we have that capacity anymore. Um, at least in a, a, a kind of um, general global society sense where we've lost that ability to look at something and go, yeah, I, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I'm going to go along with this because mm -hmm. this is a system that we have in place. Oh, I don't disagree with that. So in terms of, of the UK in particular, the only thing that you have to fall back on in that particular situation, or I guess in our situation, is the Constitution. That's mm -hmm. the only thing that's, that's telling you that you should uphold this decision. And these are the norms that we have to live by yeah. because this is what's been set yeah. forth well before said. us in terms of the UK. They don't have that, yeah, which queen. is excessively yeah. problematic. I'm going to go beyond the, it's, it's so to potentially back, I problematic. I will point out that That's we, our constitution you know, dates back <laughs> almost 300 years. The, the core of the British constitution dates back to 1215. So, I mean, it, it's been around for a while. I mean, they do have principles. <laughs> It's just a rounding difference right. still, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but if the entire, it, like we, we talked about it, it, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, norms in society and in, in government. If we don't, if especially in the UK, if they don't follow those, the system could very well break down fairly quickly. What's interesting to me, it strikes me that both the UK and the United States are, are facing similar problems high leadership who don't want to play by the rules, who are will, willing to bend the rules, get around the rules. And, you know, one constitution or lack of constitution has been around forever. The United States, who's been much shorter, you know, a written or not written, we're both struggling with those. Uh, I think this is a different era, though. I think we have, some, I, again, yeah. I think we have something to fall back on. That It's it's a, a, a finite thing. It's a very definitive thing in terms of the actual document itself. Yeah. And, and I, as long as we continue to hold it that way. Right. right? But there's yeah. still some sort of bulwark there as opposed to Nick. I'm not nothing. so, I'm not so convinced that it matters that it's written down. I think it does. I think, I think it really, problem. you know why it does? Because there are branches of government that ha that swear to uphold it at some point. <laughs> but it, one of the interesting dimensions of Gore is that there's only one branch of government that has no access to an enforcement mechanism. Mm -hmm. And that's the Supreme court. They don't have an army. They don't have police. They don't have any mechanism to enforce their decisions other than American trust. And in some ways, it makes it even more, to Phil's point, uh, the case that the British situation is a lot like ours. Uh, yeah, I don't think Boris Johnson is going to decline to leave any more than uh, uh, Donald Trump might or something like that. But Donald Trump and Congress have a, a military. Mm -hmm. uh, the Supreme Court has nothing to move him out uh, other than the American yeah. trust in that institution. But it's a really big deal. It is a big deal. But and if it's eroding, as you're suggesting, that's an even bigger deal. Well, I, I mean, my, this is really a, in terms of the worst case scenario, if there was a situation where, um, you know, Trump wasn't leaving or there was some sort of military coup or something, realistically, the first, not first, but, a, a, a primary concern of a lot of citizens would be upholding 
the tenets of the Constitution, I would imagine, mm-hmm. not just saying that they're doing something wrong and we need to do something about it. They're not upholding their duties as elected officials. I, I, I think that that so is a difference. I, I will. My, my pushback is that you're yeah, your your idea about America and our trust and reliance on the Constitution presumes that there is one standard interpretation and understanding of the Constitution, like the idea that everyone would fall into it. Well, it, it, it does. So, so what, I mean, I mean, what, like the, I, it, it's, there is, yes, we have a document that is clear. We can read the words, what it says in the second amendment, but what does the second amendment mean? There are countless different interpretations of that. So having a document does not mean that right. there is like widespread agreement and everyone believes that this is how it should be upheld and how it should be interpreted. That's no, that's no different than the, than no. the British system. Yeah. Correct. No, I, I agree. But the difference is that there's a, a significant del- deliberation about what the meaning of that is. And we have to decide what that is and come to some sort of consensus on that at some point. You can't just all of a sudden decide that one side is correct and one is not. There, there's just, there, there is a deliberative process that you know requires some sort of thought behind it, I think. I, I think that, I, I don't know, I, I think that's a fundamental difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no British equivalent for an Article Three court interpreting a written constitution and saying, here is the practical consequence mm-hmm. of that constitution for the American people. Um, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the argument you're making, but I think that's a, that's, a, that's a profound difference because I'm not saying all we do is trust the document. We trust at this point in history, and this is why I think Nick's point's an important one, we trust the people that interpret it. And so when they said, as a constitutional matter, dot, 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 fill in the blank, generally speaking, Americans have all said, okay, whether it's the ones that thought abortion was immoral, when they said Roe versus Wade was the law of the land, right. largely complied with. But it would be the British Parliament, right? They would be the ones that are interpreting that. So it's, yeah, it's a living constitution. Right. This cluster yeah, of... Yeah. Yeah. And but, what is the respect in in that determination? But you're expecting yeah, that yeah, to totally respect agree. something right. there. Right. Like, oh, no, there's that's, nothing. That's yeah. yeah. It, it all depends on, on, on these norms upholding over time. Yeah. And realistically, we've seen a massive erosion of that over the past decade or so. Uh, I agree with that. Stupid let's, norms. Let's, we got to talk California. <laughs> no, I mean, I was going to say that. Phil was still shaking. I, I think head. the dif- disagreement <laughs> between Nick and I is, is, is maybe different than than than. I, I don't I don't disagree with with you, Tom. That the 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 power is in you know the faith is in the institutions. But all I'm saying is that um, that I think that is also the case in Britain, right? So I, I don't you know it comes down to whether it's a written document or whether it is uh, you know a body of laws passed by Parliament. That that comes down to whether or not people have faith in the institutions to uphold those rules. And and in that sense, we are a faith-based system in the same way that Britain is a faith-based system. And whether it is a single document or whether it's a body of laws, I don't think that we're actually all that different um, of a situation. I, I, I would agree with that. I, I, I would think most of what we do is, is for lack of a better term, taken on, on faith. But I do think that there is a, a, a technical written component of that that is the the uh, again the the mm-hmm. last bulwark that we have um to some extraordinary changes that hopefully we will never see that's a good discussion Thanks. Did, does the bell go off I, yeah last, uh, 
All right. I'm going to go. Yeah. All right. So a few weeks back, we discussed California's new law requiring presidential candidates to release their tax records if they want to be on the California primary ballot. This was obviously an attempt to get at President Trump's tax records. Since then, the Trump campaign has moved to fight the law in court. In a lawsuit filed by Trump, he called the new law, quote, a naked political attack against the sitting president of the United States. When he signed the law, California's governor defended it, saying these are extraordinary times. And states have a legal and moral duty to do everything in their power to ensure leaders seeking the highest office meet minimal standards and uh, restore public confidence, unquote. When we initially discussed this issue, we said we wanted to revisit the debate next time when Tom was on to think more about the legal implications of states imposing additional requirements on presidential candidates. candidates. Tom, what's your legal mind telling you about this California law? Well, the first thought I have is that Gavin Newsom made Donald Trump's point. When he says these are extraordinary times, so we're passing a state statute to keep somebody off a primary ballot, uh, he has effectively said the same thing the president did, maybe more artfully. And that's part of what worries me about this. There's no constitutional requirement that candidates reveal any information other than uh, their age, their citizenship, and their residency. Uh, and the argument made on one side of this uh, uh, scenario, I guess is the best word to use, is California can't do more than the Constitution asks. Mm -hmm. I think a more compelling argument is that we're opening a slippery slope up that is going to invite states to do a wide variety of requests. And I'm just thinking here about health records. Um, how about library checkouts? How about browser history? How about uh, grade, mental grade health school, visits? Uh, mm -hmm. Mental health visits. This is a really dangerous thing. I, you know, I sit here, I often make the joke about the libertarian position is or something like that. Uh, libertarians have a deep commitment to privacy. And my view is that the market, and here it would be an electoral market, can sort out what information it wants and what information it doesn't. Donald Trump said before he was elected, I'm not giving you my tax returns. He didn't make any bones about it. He didn't give them. And people uh, voted for him. They may or may not do the same thing in uh, 2020. But the way to solve this problem isn't state statutes that could lead to an almost endless list of things that are intended to exclude people from primaries. The answer is to let people vote based on what candidates give them. As a legal matter, I think this is a pretty close question. Uh, states have a lot of latitude. There's no such thing as a federal election. I'm saying this to political scientists who know it better <laughs> than I do. But I mean, as a legal matter, there's no such thing as a federal election. So what's happening here is California is setting the rules for its own primary. I don't know whether or not those of you who are institutionalists and care about political parties, I don't care about either, as you know. I'm a little worried that Nick is going to call this in, uh, this episode, TC actually is an institutionalist <laughs> after that last speed round thing. But I was really worried about uh, that. If you're worried about political parties, what I think you're probably saying to yourself is, do we want California or fill in the blank, some other state making judgments that would make it hard for us, Republicans, Democrats, Texas, anybody, right? Anybody yeah. to decide who goes uh, to the national election for our party. That's mm -hmm. uh, not a legal argument as much as a political one. Um, I, I'm actually inclined to think, and, and Jerry Brown didn't when he vetoed this bill long ago, I think this might pass legal muster. I don't think it passes political 
common sense. So I, I, I'll jump in. I have a couple monster. of thoughts slash questions on it. I mean, one of my thoughts, I think I mentioned this last time we talked about this topic, you know, for all of my ranting about norms, I, we've talked about how we have this faith in norms that isn't always necessarily uh, well-founded. And so there are times when if we think something is important, rather than just having faith that people are going to behave in a certain way, we should actually make a law about it. If that's, you know, rather than just presuming that people will, you know, will, will adhere to certain standards. Let's actually write it down and make it required. And so, uh, in, in some ways I'm sympathetic to that, right? If, 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 if it is an important norm, if we think that disclosing financial ties and financial records is an important aspect of the presidency, which is how we act, right? We talk about how every presidential candidate that back to whatever point disclosed this, and it's a big deal that Trump didn't do it. Yeah. Record, yeah, no, I, I mean, like as a society, we talk about it. Like so it's I want to make sure. And so if it is important as a society, then let's make it a, a law. And so I, I, that I'm, I'm in some ways sympathetic to. Um, I'm also sympathetic to your point, Tom, which is like, where does that stop? Right. So what else are we going to put in this list of things um, that determine uh, whether someone is is uh, eligible or not? My question for you, Tom, is is in terms of legal interpretation. So you know, the the clause in the Constitution um, about who can be president. No person except a natural born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Neither, neither shall any person be eligible who has not attained the age of 35 years. Um, they're all sort of in the negative, right? It's, it's basically saying these people are not eligible to be president. It doesn't say it in the positive. It doesn't say these are the three requirements to be president. Does that make a difference in how the court, I mean, you were saying you think they might, this might stand legally. Is that kind of part? Okay. That, that's exactly why. That is to say, we haven't set outer boundaries. We've set very narrow inner boundaries and everything outside of them seems to me to be fine. So I, my guess is if a court hears this, they're likely to say, well, California owns its elections. This is a primary election. Lots of other states have tried in one way or another to have um, uh, minimal entry barriers to be, you know, signatures. uh, You you can't get on the ballot if you don't have 20,000 signatures or something like that. I think they might put this in the same category. The the problem is that as a practical public policy matter, uh, it seems to me if they rule that way, they have opened the door to uh, in an, an awful Pandora's mm-hmm. box of questions. Mm-hmm. This is clearly, we can all say this out loud and agree to it. This is clearly aimed at Trump. That's why these are extraordinary times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so what stops the governor of Mississippi from saying when Elizabeth Warren is running, these are really extraordinary times. I want X from her yeah. or from Bernie Sanders. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. Bill's raised one of the really most important ones of all. How about your mental health records? We might all sit here and say, let's treat mental health like physical health. These aren't different things. And I think that's how many people think about it. I'm guessing there's a huge percentage of Americans that would say if there's any evidence that a presidential candidate went to a psychiatrist or or took an antidepressant, they are unfit for office. Well, I don't want people digging around into mm-hmm. that. I, I reject the idea that the, the condition to be a candidate is to reveal things that normal Americans regard as pu- uh, private information. Your taxes. The IRS has already read these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If he's breaking the law, the IRS has a charge to find that. And they're looking. Uh, 
this one gets me almost as exercised mm-hmm. as those five senators <laughs> who I, I hope are, yeah. oh boy. But <laughs> we, we have eroded privacy rights in America over, over the last decade or so in ways that are really, and, I, and I'm not saying this in a joking way, profoundly mm-hmm. troubling. Uh, and I think this is one more step in a direction that, that sets us up for, if you're not willing to make your life an open book, you're not willing to have a public life mm-hmm. at all. Right. And, and I think that's who wants to run under these circumstances. Yep. We're going to wind up with people that don't care what people think about them. Maybe we've, we already, maybe we've already yeah. got one. Or people that can hide shit and they, they just will never release yeah, right. anything. I feel like this yeah. is more a, a, a um, this is legislation that's uh, not even legislative. It, it's it's a, a policy aimed at an elitist culture of politicians who know that they can get away with this anyways. <clears throat> and it negates the ability of people who, to your point, Tom, uh, would probably be good legislatures, yeah. would be good candidates who, who want nothing to do with this, who don't have anything to hide, yeah. but they don't want the scrutiny behind it. Man, I do my income taxes on Quicken. Right. <laughs> I don't have the slightest idea mm-hmm. what the IRS code says about, uh, you know, I don't know, FICA withholding or some mm-hmm. awful government regulation mm-hmm. that Bill and Phil think is a terrific <laughs> idea. But the point is, is there, what are the odds that I haven't made a mistake over all these mm-hmm. years or that Quicken hasn't or something like that? So do I put my family in a position where, because it's a norm that I release all this information, um, the other side doing op research, mm-hmm. oppo research finds out, oh, that Kavanaugh. You know mm-hmm. what he did? He took a charitable donation for something he shouldn't have. I, I think what I say to myself is it's not worth it. I'll come at Why this would from, I do it? Yeah. And I'll tell you something. I'd be a better politician than a lot of people right. prepared. Right. All of you three would be too. Yeah. Than a lot of people prepared to stand up to that kind of scrutiny. That'd be so good. And Trump is a unique situation, but <laughs> setting that aside. Nick wants to be yeah. president. <laughs> I'll come at this real quickly from a different perspective. And and I am against the California law. And I've been thinking about this for a while for a couple of reasons. One, for what you guys have said, it's an intrusion. But also, I've been, I have been I pair this with the voting laws. So there, there have been, you know, the voting law yeah. acts in states that are pursuing, which are much more intrusive, making it more difficult to vote. I think in general, we should pursue policies that allow candidates to run and voters to vote. Amen. And I want more voters voting and I want more more candidates running and make how do we create an environment where that's the case? And so California's going one direction saying we're going to make it more difficult for Republican Trump to vote. I'm against that. You know, the southern states that are pursuing these voter rights laws, I'm against that as well. Get people let people vote, reasonable people. Um, so th- th- this troubles me that both sides are now engaging. You're exactly in these right. Kind of but my, my little make it more difficult jab that I wanted to throw in is mm-hmm. you're, you're no, I just wanted to make a comment about your, your, exactly your statement right. that you want Comma. more candidates but. in it clearly reveals that it has been a few weeks since you watched the last democratic debate. <laughs> <laughs> this is true this but is it's true. all it's this it's certainly true. but all of them are are elitist they can all you know circumvent all of this stuff like it's yeah. it, it, we've we've bred a class of people that think that they can get away with anything and that that are not uh beholden to to these policies that are put in place realistically if a democrat takes control in 2020 i guarantee this legislation goes away or will not somehow be put in right. place right in the proper way this sort of dovetails with what you said earlier about eroding trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, who looks at the modern American political context 
And, and these kinds of things, these nakedly mm-hmm. political partisan things and says, man, I want to get in that system. I yeah. want to run. Yeah. I want to, and I'm, I mean, I'm struck by the fact that we're all older than Nick here. I'm a lot older than Nick here. Uh, and <laughs> very older. If, if this is the way people are starting to think, this is a huge mm-hmm. difficulty for us. Mm-hmm. Why vote? Why run? Uh, my God, in, in Oak Park, where I live, to run for the library board, you've got to reveal your taxes and, you know, you've got to sign a, we're a nuclear free zone pledge and <laughs> all kinds of things. <laughs> I guess my point is, is I'm totally with you, Bill. You said it so perfectly. Let's have lots of people run. Let's have lots of people vote, assuming they're really still alive. Yeah, and, right, right, right. But that's easy to do, right? Yeah. Because that's what democracy yeah. looks like. It doesn't right. look like what we're making yeah. it into. I agree. All right, we've been waiting for this final topic, Nick. Hell yeah. All right. So all presidential campaigns have music playlists that rally the masses as supporters make their way into political events. Then candidates take the stage to walk-up songs that capture the heart of their candidacy. Yesterday, the New York Times released an interactive feature that analyzed the playlist of 10 contenders. And let me tell you, it was fascinating. For instance, Kamala Harris is the most hip-hop-minded of all the candidates, whereas Beto O'Rourke plays lots of rock and punk music. Elizabeth Warren's playlist is primary songs from the 1990s and before. What? I really liked hers, Nick. That's showing my age. Oh, but. God. Um, I lost my place. Oh, yeah. Kristen Gillibrand's playlist reflects her desire to appeal to female voters, as and roughly three-quarters of the artists on her playlist are women. By contrast, Bernie is less interested in female artists as all but one of his songs on his 2020 rally listers is led by male performers. The New York Times found that Joe Biden's broad bid for centrist voters is reflected in his playlist, which is almost perfectly divided between black and white artists. <laughs> this is great. I love all of this. They also Including exam- the expressions you're getting from Nick and I. <laughs> right. They also examined Trump's finding that his, uh, that his rally music is overwhelmingly performed by white artists or majority white bands and that 69% of Trump's songs are from the 50s through the 70s. I could go on and on. But this interactive feature is worth looking at. And I'll certainly tweet the link out. Phil, you've actually done some research on uh, you know, the intersection really kind of, of music and politics. Because I, so, the so the how, first reaction, reaction might be that this, this is silly to look at, you know, like, why are you drawing links between what music, that, you know, they're picking. But but this is in, in today's day and age, this is highly intentional, right? The music they're choosing is is intentional. Um, and the way you describe it, you're describing the the supporters of each of these candidates, right? I mean, they are trying to reach out to a particular group of people to fire up a particular group of people. Um, you know, Trump, the example of, of Trump, right? His music is, is, uh, mostly white and in the fifties to seventies, right? That is, you just described Trump's base, right? I mean, people who, well, both age demographic, but people who, you know, that's the music of, of the, the people who tend to show up for his rallies. I, I had a conversation with Jake LaHutt, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, the Keen Sentinel reporter. I don't know if, if you're listening, Jake, this late into the podcast high. Um, but, uh, he went to the, there was a Trump rally in New Hampshire, um, last week and he went and he, one of the things he was talking about when we were chatting was the, how impressed he was or how interesting it was to see the way the, the music was used. It's, it's like going to a a concert, right? There, there is an an intentional mood that is, is, is to be set. You know, the research that I've, I've done, um, looks at the, the sort of shifting themes in country music over the last 50, 60 years, but music is, it it is political, oftentimes, sometimes it's overtly political, but even in the sort of the themes that people hit on, they are, there are links to politics, right? And so everything these campaigns are doing is, 
intentional. And, and I thought it was fascinating to look at that and to see the ways in which it lines up so perfectly with, you know, what's a Gillibrand voter look like? What's a Warren voter look like? And Warren's the one that's in, to me in some ways the most interesting because it's not the most, it's, it's like the least interesting, right? In some ways it's kind of the, the plainest of the ones, but I think that again is also intentional, right? Like she is, she has a sort of a broader reach that she's aiming for as opposed to, you know, there's kind of this niche that Beto is in. There's this niche that, uh, that, that Harris is in, in some ways. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's fascinating to look at. It's, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's funny to talk about, but like to your point, Bill, all this is intentional and realistically music is one of the, the, the fundamental things that, that brings people together. It's this communal kind of tribal thing that is, is universal and everybody understands, but they've taken so many cues from like the WWE and, and to, to appeal to certain <laughs> yeah. major league baseball, right? Major yeah. league baseball, you know, walk up songs and, and things like that, that, They've, they've, similar to their, their overall campaigns, they've segmented themselves into very specific parts of the electorate that they're trying to appeal to. And, and there, there are enough of them still at this point that I'm not sure that they can differentiate themselves enough to, to make a difference. And I, it's just, they're, they're just dumb. They're just bad. They're, <laughs> they're bad at it. They're just bad at it. Like, I, like as much as, you make fun of Trump. Like realistically, he could play Hulk Hogan's theme song. And realistically, he has before. <laughs> he could play uh, "I'm a Real American" over and over and over again, and he would appeal to a massive amount of. But he's of good American. At, he's, he's really good at, good at it. Yeah, he's yeah. fantastic at music. His his trolling game on Twitter is on point. He's great at the media aspect of it, and these guys just are not good at. It. Okay, Tom. <laughs> Well, let me just say two things. <laughs> the first is authenticity matters. No, it doesn't. And, and we are starting to ruin the concept that authenticity matters. So the fascinating thing the Times could do would be to ask these uh, candidates, who do you really listen to? Now, they wouldn't tell the truth because they're allergic to doing that. The on candidates. Both sides. Yeah. The candidates, yeah. Um, here's the second thing. What a libertarian would do is listen to the Grateful Dead <laughs> sing you and lose. <laughs> reveling in the glories of everything that is the Grateful Dead, and I do mean everything, yeah. as they start their campaign rally with that gorgeous American tribute to both the U.S. and the Blues. Oh, I knew you'd bring up the dead. My friend, in every conversation, yeah. one brings up the dead. Music is be There's only one band in the history of United States music, maybe world music. Uh, that has that niche. Yeah. It's not even music anymore. It's the sublime excellence of the dead. <laughs> then there's guys like Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize winner, not on anybody's list Oof. here. Oof, did what? I hear? No, See, I'm, I'm Nobel Dylan Prize winner. winner? Yeah, yeah no, thank right. you. But, well, maybe not. I, I don't know. There's the dead and there's everybody else. Yeah. It's that easy. So real quick. <laughs> so one of the things the Times does is they break down the most frequent word used in each playlist lyrics. Mm. So for all the songs that all the candidates do, this is good stuff. The one word that in all of the candidates shows up most frequently is love. It's the number one word for Booker and Warren and the third most prominent word for Trump. 
Now, it goes across the board except for Sanders, where <laughs> Sanders, his his love is almost all the way at the bottom. <laughs> so he's less interested wow. in that. And, and second at the top, hard. Yes. Now, the first two words, the first two most frequent words used in each playlist for Donald Trump is macho and man. Love it. <laughs> so we know what song is being played there. Uh, in general, I think this is really, really interesting. And I, I think you guys are both right that it, it is a artificial creation, but there's something in it. The fact that, that, that Beto and Trump are both 70% rock and Harris is 0% rock. That's interesting. Um, and, and fluttering around 4.5%. Well, she listened right. to Tupac before he was even a thing, right? Was, in college? Was that not, not the thing? That's why this, you know, the. the, the <laughs> Tupac, Tupac. Yeah. Two pack, two pack. Says Nick. Yes, that's what she said. <laughs> oh, so the other thing is like so. So tr- like, I uh, don't actually seventy percent <laughs> of Trump songs are from the fifties and the seventies, whereas Gillibrand and it's Castro. A, it's an Booker, I mean, article. I think there's there's a lot of really interesting things here. No, you should. I'll, I'll tweet it out. You know, listen, the guy drove around behind the dead for a summer. Let me just say to you, the guys I hope are voting are them. <laughs> I feel like we just need your We'd stories. Be, I, I, oh. <laughs> We won't tell any. <laughs> I won't be on the Supreme Court. Neither was Douglas Ginsburg. <laughs> but man, the dead. Oh. I just, I feel like oh, we should all fall. No, I mean, I'm in heaven. Oh. Phil, yeah, I mean, Phil, I, I could talk a little bit on this. I mean, you're the only one who's done real research I, uh, on music and politics. And listen to um, something. Me, uh, man, I was yeah. I mean, I, there's, there's you know, the love thing is interesting because in the research we've done, like love in you know looking at country music is the most common theme in like across the board in music. The interesting thing is the way in which you talk about love, like you know, varying over time, the amount of time that uh, or the way songs talk about you know infidelity or cheating or whatever, and that that's changed over time. I, the only thing that I would say is that I, you know, you were saying, Nick, that you think that they're that Trump is good at this and the others are are really bad at it. Um, I I I think Trump is really good at it, but I think even though it feels like, you know, schmarmy or fake or whatever. I think that most of them, not all of them, but I think most of the other ones are also good at it. It's, it's stuff that, you know, that, you know, I think about Hillary and when her campaign and she, she played, you know, she used lots of songs that were uh, lots of women artists and women's empowerment type, type music. And I, I think there are people who, you know, disliked that, but I think for her base and her followers, like they, that, that, that was effective. Right. So I think to that extent, I think they're, um, you know, it doesn't mean that you that you would like everyone's playlist, but I think that they're they're good at picking it. Was she doing Carly Simon so vain? I can't remember. I just want to know. <laughs> Was that one of her songs? I don't they know. can't tell whether I'm smiling <laughs> yes, <or not>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a long one. Oh, oh, that's as good a place as any. That's good. Yes. <laughs> Holy This was shit. a fun one. <laughs> Really good. I like that. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, oh, that got really loud really fast. <clears throat> um, if you guys like the Tom, thank you for for joining us again. Oh my god. I'm telling you, this is always the highlight of my week. It's, <laughs> it's the best. Thank you. Um, if you guys like the podcast, uh, questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beer is on Untapped. You can download on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. I just
holding something right now. Um, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is a real uh, money political a political prediction market. Oh, my God. Um, uh, where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barso Politics listeners who use the promo link when opening up a new account receive up to, uh, up to a $20 match. Uh, on your first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, uh, Predicted will match that $20. I'm really doing this well It's, it's the biggie. Oh, yeah, God, and right. I meant to play the song. Oh, God, and it's bad. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, like I said, use the promo link, uh, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolfall20 uh, to check that, that, uh, check that out. I, like, I, I'm not even joking with this. I, I want, I, I need a case of this beer. Shut it's up. The biggie, the biggie is good. Yes. It's a five, oh, my friend. Yeah. It's a five. I think that's Cheers. a five. Yeah. Um, anything else, guys? Not that I no, rambled through that. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Cheers.